You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. A woman isn't just one thing. The past is in us, constantly changing us. Heartache and failure shift our perspectives, as do joy and triumphs. At any moment, on any given day, we can be friends, competitors, or enemies. We can be generous or stingy, loving or petty, helpful or untrustworthy. Looking back, I had plenty of regrets. I'd told myself I was protecting Grace by not telling her about Joe, because I knew how hurt she'd be. I still believed my heart had been in the right place. But how the truth came out and how I handled things that awful night weren't at all sensitive to Grace's feelings. I'd been so harsh trying to teach her a lesson about grown-ups and growing up. But teaching a lesson isn't a part of friendship, neither is being cruel. Now, as I sat in the shadows of the Forbidden City's main room, watching Grace, Helen, and Eddie walk through the lobby and into the kitchen to go into the dressing rooms, I wondered what faces my friends would show me and I would show them. I knew I had changed a lot, but what about them? Lisa C. is the author of Dreams of Joy, Shanghai Girls, Peony and Love, Snowflower and the Secret Fan, Flower Net, The Interior, and Dragon Bones. Her memoir is Cold Mountain. Her new novel is China Dolls. Thank you for speaking with me, Lisa. Thanks for having me. Lisa, you found such a great and particular niche in history to tell your story and talk about discovering that niche of history and finding the characters to tell your stories. Well, this novel, China Dolls, takes place in uh, the 1930s and 1940s in San Francisco primarily. It's about the Chinese-American nightclub scene, and it was in these nightclubs that they had performers who were billed as the Chinese Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, the Chinese Frank Sinatra, the Chinese Sophie Tucker, you know, the Chinese Houdini, Chinese fill-in-the-blank. And I had been hearing about these people for many, many, many years. I, I have um, fans, for example, who will send, would send me emails with uh, photographs of their mothers or aunts or grandmothers who were performers, whether it was at the Forbidden City or the China Doll in New York. And I, I always just thought this would be a really great thing to write about, you know, just a really interesting time period and really interesting people. Um, and so, actually, though, I have to say that when I started China Dolls, the reason I really chose it at that particular moment was twofold. First, there weren't, there aren't very many of those performers still living, you know, of the original performers. So I did talk to three or four who were in their late 80s, early 90s. And, you know, there are some stories by now. I know that if I don't do it right now, I may not get another chance. I'm not going to get another chance in five or ten years. So part of it was just the timing of if I want to do this and have original voices, I, I've got to do it now. And then the other was that my previous book, Dreams of Joy, was very dark, just very, very, very dark. And I think at the end of that, you know, when I write you, and you're going to these dark places, it's hard. You know, it's very hard. And so I thought I, I, 
you know, I was sort of stretched out on the couch and thinking I need to be in a lighter place for a while. And I love Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers movies. I can watch them over and over and over again. I can recite whole scenes from films. You know, it's just it's a, some weird obsession I have. And so I thought, wouldn't it be nice to sort of live in that world uh, for a while? Now, of course, I wrote this book. So Yes, there are nightclubs and champagne and dancing and beautiful dresses and all of that. But since I wrote it, there's still an awful lot of dark stuff in there. It does go to some really interesting places. I love the voices of your characters. I mean, the the voice of Grace just absolutely grabbed me from the first page. And you do a great job of setting up these three characters and interlocking their perceptions so we see one set of events from one character's eyes, then mm-hmm. the next character will tell like the last part of what the f- mm-hmm. previous character saw. Mm-hmm. So talk about discovering these three characters and creating their different voices. Right. Well, Grace is actually very much like many of the performers in that time, the women performers. Uh, there were very, very few, if any, who had actually come out of Chinatown or grown up in a Chinatown, whether it was San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, because in those communities, it was they, you know, very conservative. Uh, girls were not allowed out on the street showing their arms or their legs. They uh, were supposed to stay home and learn to embroider and knit and things like that. So Grace has grown up um, very typical to many of the performers out in the Midwest, where she, her she's the daughter of the only Chinese family for miles and miles around, and. I, you know, for a family like that to be out there already, they were already breaking the mold in a sense. They were, they were breaking away from Chinatown. They were breaking away from culture and traditions and, and customs. And so she's supposed to be, and they're supposed to be, the reddest, the whitest, the bluest. And what did any little girl at that time want to be? Shirley Temple. So she's taken a lot of dance classes, and circumstances arise that she runs away to San Francisco. And it's the first time that she's ever seen Chinese other than her own family. And then the next one is Helen, who really is, you know, truly a fictional character cause, because I didn't find anyone like her who has grown up in Chinatown, in one of those very traditional families, in a big traditional Chinese courtyard home with 30 of her relatives. And I thought, well, what would it have taken for a family in Chinatown to allow their daughter, or not care if their daughter danced in a nightclub. What would she have had to have done, or what could have been done to her, that they would just say, okay, you can do it, we don't care. And then the last is Ruby, who is Japanese, masquerading as Chinese. And in the, you know, in the 30s, and when these clubs first opened, they were billed as Chinese-American nightclubs, all Chinese-American entertainment. So if you were any other Asian group, you had to pretend that you were Chinese to, to be able to perform. And so she's, you know, starts out that way. She's, um, she's, She's kind of funny. She she's unlike anyone any character I've written before. She's got this wonderful sense of humor and this kind of lingo that she uses. She's lived in uh, Terminal Island, 
on Oahu and then in Alameda. What do those three places have in common? Well, they all had very large Japanese-American communities, but the other thing they had was naval bases. So sailors love her, and she loves sailors, and, and she has a kind of joie de vivre that the other ones don't have. She describes herself at one point as born to be bad. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked her. She was a lot of fun. Uh, it's interesting, as you read this book, you know, you do a great job of differentiating between the voices. And I'm thinking, is this like having to be play three di- this different it's parts very in, difficult. A, in a play? Yeah, it's very hard. Because you do want, I mean, I wanted them to sound very different. There comes a point, though, as you're writing, where their voices do take over, and they are so uniquely individual. I mean, in my mind, that they're so uniquely individual that Ruby could only speak the way she does, and Helen can only speak the way she does. And Helen uses, as you know, a lot of um, Chinese aphorisms, and I love those Chinese aphorisms. I've been collecting them for probably 25 years now. And so it's, it's some of those chapters, uh, I, for Helen, I actually looked for the aphorism first to kind of set the tone of how she would view the events that were coming in that chapter, which is sort of an opposite way of how you might ordinarily use an aphorism. But those would helped put me in her mindset of how she would view something. I really like those kind of aphorisms, and one of the things that struck me as I read this book was that you do a great job of evoking the, what I guess I would call the ethnic slang of yesteryear, mm-hmm. because every, I mean, you know, if we say cool now, that well, that's like from 40 years ago, and, and so every generation has its own version of slang, and you do a great job of bringing up that slang. It must have taken a lot of research. That was a tremendous amount of research, actually, for Ruby. Mm-hmm. tremendous amount of research because I I wanted the the slang to be exact to that year so I was looking at literally year by year through the decade that I'm writing about to make sure that the things she said were accurate to that year and the copy editor did catch one thing she where I can't remember what it was now but it was something like uh, I was four months too early <laughs> to use that particular piece of slang <laughs> like well, who's going to know that? And she, well, I found it, so other people could find it too. And I'm like, well, geez, you know, I, I liked it. But uh, I, I think that that's interesting. And I have these two, it's actually, they're, it's supposed to be three books, but I guess they must have gotten tired and never finished them. But these huge volumes on, on uh, slang. And they're like dictionaries, so it starts at A and works its way through. And with each entry, it tells you the first time it was ever used. And there's some slang really surprised me how old it is. I mean, you know, back to, I don't know, Shakespeare's day or whatever, you know, that it would be 400 years old. And yet it's something that I would think, oh, I wonder if they even used that in 1940. You know, when I first started, I would think, oh, I don't know if that I can use that. But I was able then a couple places where the copy editor said, oh, I don't know if this was, you know, you know, could, you can use this. I'd say, oh, yes, actually, let me look up in my handy-dandy slang dictionary. <laughs> now, one of the things I like about this book is the way it kind of starts out close and small, and we have these three small people kind of doing small things. 
but it unfolds into what I would call a true epic story and includes in the decade you cover. There's all sorts of events, and even though it's a closed community and there's three very, you know, it, it's a pretty sheltered life in a certain sense, it has a lot of uh, resonance way beyond mm-hmm. its own uh, setting. So I'd like you to talk about, did you initially know when you started out this book that it would unfold into this kind of epic uh, format? Well, I, I don't know that I thought of it as being epic, but I knew this, the things that I wanted to have happen. Mm-hmm. And I, to me, in the novel, the big turning point is the bombing at Pearl Harbor. And that that was, you know, a turning point, not just for these characters, but for our entire nation. And it was a moment where things really opened up for our whole nation. We started to look at each other differently. We started to look at other nations differently. We started to experience other nations differently, you know, with all of the the boys who went into Europe, okay, but also all the boys who went in, out to um, into the Pacific Theater and what they brought back with them and how that helped to transform our country. And so... I see that you're right, and you know that it's kind of going along, and then it just opens up, and everyone's lives get bigger because I think that there is this sense, even if you're in the home on the home front, that it is a matter of life and death. Everything comes down to a matter of life and death, and everything is, uh, you know, also about freedom, and you know those very kind of American. Uh, virtues and issues that we still talk about today, that you're really fighting for that. And so that's bigger. You know, that's bigger than being in a nightclub. It has a lot of resonance with 9-11. That's the first thing I thought, that the single event changed the way you looked at everybody around you. It changed the way you looked at the way people coming in, coming out. And I thought you did a a great job of creating the... uh, setting up the tension between the American Japanese people and the American Chinese in the in the run up to this mm-hmm. because during that time although it didn't have much of a pa- impact on the rest of America Japan had invaded China right. and and there was lots of really nasty stuff happening right yes there was and uh, you know, I'm, I'm from Los Angeles, and, and my family, you know, was in Los Angeles, Chinatown. And I can remember them talking about how, uh, you know, the, or encouraging women not to wear uh, Japanese-made silk stockings. This was a big national campaign that was really led by Chinese Americans. It was the first time that Chinese Americans actually became political. So there was the campaign against silk stockings, but also these um, picketing, you know, about sending scrap metal to to Japan. And they picketed here in the Bay Area. They also picketed down in Los Angeles at the port there. And this was such a huge step out of people's, you know, they didn't say it then, but comfort zones. Because, you know, for so long, Chinese had tried to remain invisible, but now they were really becoming very visible to fight against, um, you know, sending stuff to Japan or supporting Japan and, you know, wanting to boycott and all of that. Um, th- and, and this is the time period 
certainly just before uh, China Doll starts, that it's the rape of Nanking. And while there was news of that here, uh, it was not as broadly known, I think, in the larger community as it was in the Chinese-American community. And so with, the, with um, Pearl Harbor, again, almost overnight, everything changes. We had had the Chinese Exclusion Act from 1882 that had barred the immigration of all Chinese immigrants to the U.S. We, you know, it meant that they couldn't become naturalized citizens. There were all kinds of state and local laws. You know, here in California, you Chinese down to a quarter couldn't own property in this state. You couldn't marry in the state to, to, you know, couldn't marry a Caucasian if you were, even if you were only a quarter Chinese. So my family, um, people went to Mexico to get married, you know, and, and Washington State, they didn't change that law till 1965. But in 1943, once China and the U.S. were allies, that law could, the Exclusion Act could no longer stand. And so that was finally, um, broken apart, and that really started this wave of things. It took, some, in some cases, 20 years, but to start eliminating these really uh, very detrimental and prejudiced laws that had affected so many people, particularly in the West. Well, I, I think for all the kind of intensity that you bring to the later portions of the novel, you, you match an equal with charm and, and joy in the first parts in this kind of uh, nightclub scene. So talk about that, the research you must have done for that and creating these kind of uh, the scenes in the nightclubs with the ponies. I love this idea mm-hmm. with the ponies and the dancing girls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, the ponies were the dancing girls and canaries were the singers. And, and you know, it, that nightclub era, we don't have anything like it today, right? And the only way we ever see it or have a feeling for it is out of, in the films. And so, and whether they're old films or even period films today, where you have this sense of the banquettes and the dance floor and people in these beautiful, you know, satin gowns and men actually dressed and these drinks that all have very fancy fun names, not to mention just a little champagne on the side, you know, never hurts. And... There are certainly photographs that I can use and and certain uh, clips uh, from documentaries that I was able to look at. But mainly what I did was talk to people who had been there. And so I did interview a woman uh, down in Tucson, Mary Ong Tom, who was 88, sorry, 93 when I interviewed her. She's 96 now. When she was 93, she was still teaching jazzercise. And she had had grown up in just a very difficult, very, very, very poor uh, situation. Her father died when she was very young. Her mother had bound feet. They had a very small little grocery store, just 20 by 20 square feet, and uh, 11 brothers and sisters, so desperately poor. And Mary had a family friend who lived in San Francisco who sent money and said, you know, come out on the bus and I'll see what I can do to help you. And when she first arrived, she would walk everywhere because she couldn't afford the nickel bus fare. But eventually she was hired as one of the original eight Forbidden City chorus girls. So she had all these wonderful details about what the audition was like, what those people were like, uh, what 
the club looked like before it opened, what it looked like on opening night, what it was like to work there night after night. And I did talk to some others who um, had, you know, Dorothy Toy, who was the, was the Chinese Ginger Rogers, actually Japanese, uh, a woman named Mai Tai Singh, who was 88, a dancer, uh, who's just, you know, I, I think in many ways kind of a model for Ruby in mm-hmm. the sense that I, I think <laughs> that Mai Tai uh, slept with every man in Hollywood and then some, you know, <laughs> she was just really... Um, Quite a wild woman, and apparently the drink, the Mai Tai, was named for her. So, I mean, she cut a seriously (laughs) wide swath. (laughs) And so she was a lot of fun. But I also talked to people who were a generation down, the people who were the sons and daughters of these performers. And, of course, back then, people didn't have babysitters. They couldn't afford babysitters, so the kids would come to the nightclub. So I interviewed the son of the Chinese Frank Sinatra. There's a woman named uh, Jody Long, who both of her parents were worked there and also went out on the chop suey circuit. So she had these stories of what the clubs were like, but also what it was like to be on the road with her parents. And Joyce, Joyce, a woman named Joyce, who was Charlie Lowe's um, stepdaughter, and he had owned the Forbidden City. So they had these great stories, but from a kid's perspective, right, of what it was like to be backstage and how lucky the little boys were that they could zip up and help or unzip the women's costumes and that there was one little boy who liked to peek through the curtain at, you know, at the backside of the, of the fan dancer, and he'd get in a lot of trouble. <laughs> but these were wonderful stories that I was able to take. And then, you know, what you do is you sort of put them in a blender and you know, hit pulse or something, and zoop, 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 and then it start, and you know, you throw in your imagination as well, and then it starts to come out. And what I'm hoping is that it gives a real sense of what it was like, the 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 uh, real details of what it was like. Some of them are almost unbelievable, really, but then have characters and a story that makes people want to just live with them. You know, spend time with them. Mission accomplished. <laughs> it's really, they're really fascinating characters. And one of the things that's interesting is you do a great job of creating each of the main characters' families. Mm-hmm. So talk about creating not just a character but their family playing like a subsidiary kind of background role but important enough to be in the book and have you know major effects on the characters' right. lives. Well, so often in fiction and even on television shows and movies, it's like people don't have a family. You know, that they're, they're out there, I don't know, a detective or whatever, and they don't have a family, or it's a murder victim, doesn't have a family. But we all have a family, and uh, the, the, our families give us our greatest gifts, but they also give us our greatest burdens. You know, they're, they're also the ones who keep secrets from us. We keep secrets from them. Uh, and so I, I... I would say that in all of my novels, there people have families. You know, they they don't exist just somehow miraculously by themselves. And even if you don't see the parents or see the family all that much, there's always a huge impact on that character. And so, uh, with Grace, you you know you certainly hear about her family from the very beginning but you don't meet her mother till pretty close to the end and then 
uh, Ruby, uh, Ruby, you never really see her parents. They, there are a few phone conversations, but they are for her a burden and, and a weight, not really a burden, but a weight because she doesn't know, you know, what, what's happened to them. She doesn't know, uh, I don't want to give too much away, but she just doesn't know what they've been up to exactly. And then with Helen, I think you see her family the most, and you really see on a day-to-day basis what an impact living with them her whole life, you know, and still being with them in that compound has done to her. And I, I see these women, all of them have to, of course, they do grow up, you know, I mean, they each start so young, and it's 10 years but in that process of growing up, they have to come to terms at some level with their families. And, you know, sometimes it's just with a father, sometimes it's a mother, sometimes it's with both parents. And I think that's what we do. You know, that's what we do as human beings is as we're growing up and changing, we have to somehow come to terms with with the people who made us. It's interesting to see these people grow up and have families of their own and you do a good job of bringing in uh, the men in their lives and we meet Joe and I really like Monroe and all the the brothers named after the president mm-hmm. I think that's a really interesting touch mm-hmm. yeah Monroe's such a such a putz though <laughs> He's, you know but by the end I really liked him mm-hmm. I loved him by the end but at the beginning I was just like oh I don't like you at all <laughs> uh, and I love Eddie I, who's the dancer? I just oh, yeah. love him. I really like character. him a lot. Uh, I think Charlie Lowe, who's actually a real person, I, I really tried to catch the essence of him from all the things people had told me about him or that I'd read about him. Um, someone who, again, came from nothing, you know, had really suffered as a little boy and then became like a polo player and a nightclub owner and and many, many wives and uh, was someone who I think had a great kind, kind heart. You know, that when these women especially would get into, you know, get into trouble as in pregnant, but also just get into trouble with the men in their lives. I mean, they're working in nightclubs, so that's can be pretty rough, you know, the people that you're working with and you're the people who are out there in the audience. And that he always provided a job for women who had children or who had babies and whose husbands were off in the war, whatever it was, I thought he was pretty extraordinary. Uh, And then Joe, I really like Joe, although my husband the other night was finally reading the book, and he came to that part. There's one part, and my husband said, no man should ever hit a woman. There's no circumstance where any man should hit a woman. And I'm like, but, 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 don't you see in that one moment? And he didn't really mean to. And he's like, no, there's no excuse. I I'm, don't have any more sympathy for him. And I was like, well, read a little more, honey. <laughs> Now, uh, speaking of Joe, Grace meets Joe in her first day in San Francisco at the International Exposition, which is a really great uh, setting. So talk about researching that and how it kind of blossomed and the, the, uh, I want to say gay cave, but it's... It's the gay way. The The gay gay way. way. The gay way. And and how it kind of blossomed and then 
fell down and then got brought back to life by none other than Johnny Weissmuller and Ethel Merman. Uh, not Ethel Merman. No, not Ethel. It's um, Esther. Esther. Williams. Esther, Esther Williams. Williams. Okay. That's right. Uh, so, yeah, so the, the Forbidden City was out on Treasure Island, you know, in the Bay. It was to celebrate the completion of the, the Golden Gate Bridge and the Bay Bridge that really united, you know, the whole Bay Area and made it easier to get around. They took a position. Temporarily. That, yeah, temporarily. Uh, that they would, n- it wasn't going to be like the first World's Fair. This one was going to just focus on countries that dotted the edge of the Pacific. And it's the first time that the phrase Pacific Rim was ever used. And so there was the one part, like you said, that had the sort of country pavilions and very beautiful and quite elegant. And then over here was the gateway, which was a big carnival atmosphere. And you could go and see all of these, oh, the things you have in carnivals, you know, the headless woman and the flea circus and uh, a man who would swallow an uh, a neon light and then you could see his innards lit up and then Sally Rand's nude ranch which um, she had made a big splash at the Chicago World's Fair and then brought that here and the fair had gone along and then people stopped coming and then the organizers they hired Johnny Weissmuller and Esther Williams to do this the aquacade I think it was called and for some reason that just took off and it w- everybody had to come and see the Aquacade with Johnny Weissmuller. And nobody had heard of Esther Williams at that point. She was only 17 years old. The other thing that happened out there was all of the big bands, the really big, you know, big, big band people of those days, uh, Benny Goodman, uh, Artie Shaw, um, the Dorsey Brothers, they all played there and it's been fun these last few days as I've been doing events up in this area that the I keep meeting people who come to the events who say oh yes I went out there and I danced to fill in you know so and so or I you know I went out there with done dates with my husband and it's just wonderful to hear those stories actually a lot of stories as well about the Forbidden City uh, today there was a woman who told me that she had gone to a convent school and that she, up here in the Bay Area and that she and her friends would sneak out of the convent school and go over to the Forbidden City and kind of talk their way in. They were underage, but they would talk their way in and, and have drinks. And another woman the other day who told me it was the first place she ever had a drink was at the Forbidden City. So I love hearing that. I just love hearing these stories of the people who were there and, and used to wander around and and got to live in that, you know, something that to me just seems in many ways kind of romantic and and almost idealized, except it was a romantic and idealized time. Into this romance and idealism comes World War II, and in particular Pearl Harbor. And I think you do a great job of showing that as just a real break point. And what's interesting is to see the things from the perception of each character, especially when I think it's Grace uh, first uh, calls Ruby a Jap. And, mm-hmm. and that that's such an interesting break that she realizes it and Ruby realizes that we get it from all these different perspectives. Mm-hmm. Right. Hard to use that word in you, now. You I know, was, that's it, one thing I was thinking that. There's a lot of things you say in this war- book it's really, it must have been hard to write some of yeah, this stuff. it was. And there were things that I found 
uh, in Time and also Life magazine, these articles about how to tell the difference between a Chinese and a Japanese, just things you would never even imagine could be in a, like a mainstream publication, something like Life magazine, where it would say things like, you know, you can tell a Chinese because he can grow to five foot five, but a Japanese can only make it to five foot two. And these were just ridiculous stereotypes, but um, that's what the time was like. And it's very hard, I think, sometimes. It was very hard for me to use that word, Jap. Um, but it was the word that was used in yeah. that in that era, and to not use it would have been would have looked even more obvious. But very hard for me to use that. And there's some other things in there that were very hard for me to uh, use because, of course, it's not my worldview. You know, it's not my worldview. But it was the worldview at that time. And so, if you're going to make it authentic, sometimes you just have to go there and and try to at least try to put it into some kind of context. And so that moment when Grace says that to Ruby, it's so shocking. I mean, to me, it was so shocking. Yeah, it was and, shocking to read, too. Yeah. And, and I, th- I was, the I mean, first thing I thought was, boy, this stuff must have been really tough for her to write. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, it's interesting, of course, uh, we get uh, the Japanese internment camps and all, you know, the, the most shameful episodes of American history. And again, you do a, it's nice because you have characters who are on both sides of this divide, and you have a great chapter of letters. Mm-hmm. Did you base that on actual letters you found? No. So actually, this hasn't come up yet, but I originally wrote the book from just Grace's perspective. Really? The whole book, novel was from Grace's perspective. And then I went back and I, I was, there were things that I, you know, Helen was dying to say and that Ruby was dying to say. So that I went back and I, you know, I sort of figured out which chapters could be told purely from one character's or a different character's point of view. And then I hit that part. There was, you know, it's about 30 pages where I couldn't make it work. I just couldn't say, oh, this can all be Ruby, or this could all be Grace, or this could all be Helen. And finally, I hit on this idea of just a, a series of letters that they're all, because at that point in the novel, everyone's dispersed, right, around, around the country and even around the world because Joe is overseas, and Eddie is in Europe, and, um, you know, everybody's, all around so they're writing everybody's writing to each other from these different places but also everyone's on the move you know everyone except for one character they're all on the move and that sense of what was going on then you know of of people being on the move dynamism it's very dynamic Mm -hmm, time mm -hmm. yeah and the letters so they originally came from this chapter that were a couple of chapters that were entirely from Grace's perspective. So then to come back and write them. And a letter is so different than even having a chapter from someone's point of view. Because how you write a letter and the punctuation, we even had, you know, I had to get special permission to have a different punctuation because, you know, Random House has their standard way that they punctuate things. But in a letter, you do dashes, you don't, you don't put quotes, there are things like that. So I tried to make it look as much like an actual letter as possible. And you had to, your pub, had to get special mm-hmm. uh, a permission note from your right. publisher. Right. Wow. 
Oh, that's fascinating. There, it's an interesting section, to, the way it works within the dynamic of the novel. And also how male, you know, we don't get very much male anymore mm-hmm. like that. And that it takes a while to travel, you know, back then it took a while to get someplace and, and then a while to get back your answer. And things are happening in between, you know, while, while things are in the mail and how letters can literally cross over each other and people's lives are changing so rapidly at that moment and life is happening uh, you know certainly on an in an individual way and uh, what happens with romance when you're separated what happens to friendship when you're separated but also that sense of what was happening in the larger world was was again so you, you know you didn't know day to day were, were we winning the war losing the war were we doing well here were had people disappeared or had they been killed all of that just always happening you know literally minute by minute day by day for so many years well it you, there's some great scenes that when the war first starts where they think there are planes or People moved out of Santa Cruz because they were afraid they were going to get bombed. Right, right. And I, I love that Joe says, well, wait, Japan is 5,000 miles away from California, and Germany's like 3,000. We're not worried about Germany. And, but people's, it's it's an interesting uh, comment on how but powerful our fears are. But we weren't in the war are. with but he. but then someone says, you know, he, he, uh, he may be a college boy. I won't say what they say after that, but you know, they, he may be a college boy, but he doesn't know what he's talking about because the U.S. wasn't at war with Germany at that point. Right. So why would, why would we worry about Germany attacking us? Well, actually, I think at that point there were German submarines off the U.S. Right. coast. <laughs> now, uh, I, one of the things I think that this book does very well is in these sections even though you keep the stories close and personal, you do a great job of building out the wider world and the way it plays into the personal lives, but also echoing the current world, too. And I was wondering how much of that was you just couldn't help it and how much of that is just the way that the similarities of the times. What do you mean by the current world? Today. Today. I mean, I feel like a lot of this, when I I read about uh, the uh, attack on... Uh, Pearl Harbor, all I could think of was that, boy, that's just so much like 9-11. Right, and how we reacted. Yes, And how people react. Badly. Mm -hmm. And so I'd like you to talk about just, you know, did you think about this and the parallels between then and now when Mm -hmm. you were writing this? Well, you know, the past does repeat itself. I mean, and we don't really learn from the past as well as we might but we've been through it all before. You know, we've been through these different kinds of things over and over again. And we don't always, as a nation, learn. And, we, and even, even as individuals, we don't necessarily learn from the past. Uh, I, I think besides Pearl Harbor 9-11, uh, I think it's interesting how even today you'd be hard-pressed to find or name many Asian American actors who are successful. Most of the Asian American act or Asian actors that we know come from mainland China, Hong Kong, Taiwan, um, Korea. You know that we don't really have our own group. That they that if people and I know because I've had 
you know, one of my books was turned into a film, but I've had other discussions with producers about other books that could be turned into films, and they never talk about an American actress uh, for for a role. They're always talking about the the women who have been very popular in in China, and you know, let's bring them over, and and they can play this. Why is that? I don't know why that is. I mean, I I have my suspicions about why that is, but I don't really know why we still have that kind of uh, separation and just an unwillingness to hire people for entertainment who might be Latino or Asian and that there is still this, to me, it's, I wouldn't even call it a glass ceiling because that implies something that's kind of high up, but this sense that we, that, that wouldn't be acceptable. And if you talk to um, Latino American artists, singers, actors, writers, I think they have that same feeling that, you know, as much as we do, we can't seem to, you know, there, maybe there's one, maybe there's two, maybe there's three, but we can't really break this into this in a big way, into the mainstream in a big way. So I, I don't know. I, I think it's interesting. And yet, you know, I've had these reviews for this book. They've all been lovely. I mean, I'm really happy with them. But many of them say, uh, oh, isn't it good that we don't live in those days anymore, that all of that is behind us? But I don't see it as being behind us at all. I've been speaking with Lisa C. Her new novel is China Dolls. Thank you for joining me, Lisa. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.